1: I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Today, after the news, uh, I interview Dr. Irina Raplanyan. I was recently in Armenia shooting my uh, documentary feature film called uh, Motherland, and uh, I met Dr. Raplanyan who is uh, an expert in South Caucasus politics, uh, as well as uh, many other things. And uh, I realized that a lot of people don't know what's happening halfway around the world. The war that uh, Azerbaijan and, and Turkey have now declared on Armenia proper and are uh, just killing people uh, for their expansionist pan-turkic aspirations and uh, I get a lot of people who uh, you know ask me about it that sort of never either heard about it or just really are not sure what's happening so Dr Kaplanian will explain all of that to us in detail the history what happened and what's happening now, Uh, so uh, stay tuned. That would be right after the news. Here are some headlines from over the weekend and this morning. A federal judge suggested Friday that former President Donald Trump had some responsibility for the January 6th attack on the Capitol and that rioters were pawns provoked into action. Speaking at the sentencing hearing for a rioter, the judge said, Rally-goers like him were called to Washington, D.C. by an elected official, prompted to walk to the capitol by an elected official. House Democrats have voted to pass President Joe Biden's sweeping $1.9 trillion social safety net expansion legislation, a victory for the party even as the legislation faces a tough road ahead in the Senate. The final tally was 220 to 213. Rep Jared golden of Maine was the only Democrat to vote against the bill and no Republicans voted for it. The vote took place on Friday morning after the house GOP leader, Kevin McCarthy stalled an effort to vote Thursday evening by delivering a record-breaking marathon floor speech overnight. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made the announcement.
2: Good morning, everyone, and a good morning it is. Today, we have the honor of participating in passing legislation for the people to build back better, as I always say, with women, for the children. Uh, uh, This occasion would not have been possible without the vision of our great president, President Biden, uh, he has said that the infrastructure bill was very, very important, and we agree. But it was not the sum total of his vision for how we do build. And building back better meant building back with many more people participating, and with environmental justice, uh, with home health care, the list goes on and on. One thing I'm particularly excited about is family medical leave. and. Oh, that is a fight that we are uh, have always been engaged in for a long time. Steny and I and Kyron, we were here when the time <laughs> your medical leave passed, mm-hmm. unfunded, and now we have it funded. So for these and other reasons, as Mr. Mr. Hoyer said at the beginning of his remarks, Will be telling our children and grandchildren that we were here this day. You were reminding me of St. Crispin's Day speech when you were saying that. And Mr. K- Mr. K- uh, our distinguished whip, Mr. Clyburn talked about the three legs of the stool: the rescue package, the BIF, and now this bill being the infrastructure of our future. And of course, our distinguished chair of the Ways and Means Committee, who held down the fort for such a long time, for a long time, but including last night. Mr. Neal quoting Daniel Rutster and our responsibility to act. So for us, it's about not just about legislation, it's about values and the values that this legislation represents for the people.
1: President Joe Biden confirmed on Thursday that he is mulling a U.S. diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. It's something we've been considering, Biden told reporters in the Oval Office, following a bilateral meeting with the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. A senior administration official said that Biden is not expected to attend the upcoming Olympics in China this February and that his administration is on the verge of implementing a diplomatic boycott of the Games. U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, warned Friday that the war in Tigray has put Ethiopia on a path to destruction that could reverberate throughout East Africa, telling CNN that the country's leader, Abiy Ahmed, must fulfill his responsibility and end violence in the region. In November 2020, Abiy ordered military offensive in Tigray to oust the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The fighting has left thousands dead, displaced more than 2 million people, and given rise to a wave of atrocities that bear the hallmarks of a genocide.
0: Um, finally, e- Ethiopia. Um, I am very concerned uh, about the potential for uh, Ethiopia to, uh, to implode, uh, given uh, what, we're, um, what we're seeing, uh, both in Tigray, uh, but also as uh, we have different forces and different ethnic groups. Uh, that are increasingly uh, at odds. And we are working very closely to uh, support the efforts of the former Nigerian President Obasanjo to mediate uh, a way forward uh, with all the Ethiopian parties. We're in extremely uh, regular and close contact with him. We have a special envoy, uh, Ambassador Jeff Feltman, uh, who is uh, deeply engaged in this. Other uh, key players in the region um, are very much engaged. and. I think is each of the different groups uh, is looking at this. Um, there are there are two paths forward. One path forward is out and out conflict, which could lead to the implosion of Ethiopia and spill over into uh, other countries in the region, and that would be disastrous for the Ethiopian people uh, and uh, also for uh, for countries uh, in the region. Uh, the other path is uh, to halt all of the um, military actions that are, uh, that are currently underway, to sit down, uh, to negotiate a, uh, a real ceasefire, uh, to make sure that humanitarian assistance can get in to all of the regions where people are in need, uh, Tigray, of course, but also uh, people in Amara, uh, the Amoros, others, um, and ultimately Uh, to negotiate a a durable political resolution to uh, the differences that that have emerged uh, over the last year. I believe that that is still um, not only possible, but necessary, and I can tell you the the United States is um, working very hard to support all of the efforts that are trying to move Ethiopia in that direction.
1: US public health officials approved making booster shots available to all adults on Friday, opening a new phase in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic as Americans brace for another winter of rising infections and hospitalizations. Although boosters were available to older Americans and those at risk of infection, now anyone who is at least 18 years old or and can get another shot as long as it's been six months since their previous dose, if they previously got the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, or two months if they received the Johnson and Johnson shot.
0: Let's get, blunt.
1: let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's let's get blunt, I want to talk about uh, the double standard that exists in media, world media, the lazy, inept, and a lot of times biased reporting on uh, major issues and how they they use double standards and. Both sideism and false balance when reporting it. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. So right now, as I'm as I'm saying this, uh, Azerbaijan uh, has invaded the sovereign nation of Armenia and has already killed uh, 12 people, taken about 15 hostage, and uh, several other are missing. And so this is a very black and white issue. I mean, that's exactly how it's happened. And so, but when you read some of the reporting that's happening, whether it's New York Times, uh, BBC, uh, LA Times, uh, etc., they won't report facts. They won't really get into the detail uh, as to what happened. They use very general statements like Oh, skirmishes have happened on the border of Azerbaijan and Armenia, or tensions have escalated, or um, fighting has began. It's absurd. None of those are true. It's an invasion of a sovereign state. If Canada invaded the U.S. through, let's say, northern New York, via Niagara and killed 12 people and took 15 hostage, how would we report that? Reporters, journalists, would make sure that they get all the details and report it exactly as it's happened. In fact, they'll bother to actually get the names of the deceased and report it unless they're under 18 years old and get to the facts. But when it comes to Armenia, a tiny nation of 3 million, the reporting is so cavalier, so inaccurate and just plain wrong and or they do sort of like the other offense which is both sideism and it reminds me of this this meme that I saw where it said um, if one person says it's raining and the other person says it's not raining it's not your job as a journalist to... Quote both of them. It's your job to look out the window and see if it's raining or not, and who's telling the truth. And that reminds me of what they're doing with uh, this this genocidal attack uh, that Azerbaijan and Turkey have unleashed on not only Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, but also now Armenia, and how it's being reported, where they're using both sideism and false balance as if uh, Armenia has any sort of Part in instigating this. Uh, this is this is a matter of land grab and ethnic cleansing. This is about uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey wanting to connect those two nations and the only way they can do it is through the southern uh, region of Armenia called Sunik. And this is all about that so that they can put their um, oil and gas pipelines um, and such and also have access to all the water sources. And yet... If you read the New York Times, which is the biggest offender of this, as well as uh, BBC and and many others, Wall Street Journal too, they gave you they they give you such a false sense of what is happening. It's so lazy. Another thing I can and another example would be, you know, a couple of years ago, a few few people were gunned down in Nice, France, and I remember that for weeks this was reported with such accuracy where, when, how, time, the names, the pictures, and everything. If a few people in France are worthy of this kind of reporting, why is it that 5,000 Armenians being slaughtered, overwhelming majority of them being between the ages of 18 and 21, that they're not worthy of accurate reporting and what happened? That Azerbaijan and Turkey overnight came in with a military might with drones, and hired mercenaries from Pakistan, Syria, Libya, and started slaughtering people um, using white phosphorus munitions on villages and forests and burnt them down. And they targeted uh, maternity hospitals and schools and residential areas. Um, It's such terrible double standard in journalism, uh, if you can call it that. Uh, And they need to be called out on it. Uh, New York Times does this, Uh, over and over again. And one semi-non-related but sort of related thing with the New York Times is for decades, the New York Times uh, refused to use the term Armenian genocide all the way until, and and those of us that knew, knew that the New York Times had archives uh, of the Armenian genocide because a lot of it was reported in the New York Times in 1915 uh, when this was happening. But yet they refused to acknowledge it and call it by its proper name until this uh, April when President Biden recognized the Armenian Genocide. Overnight, New York Times decided to start a workshop uh, and charge for it. Uh, teaching people about the Armenian genocide using their archives. This literally, I remember seeing uh, something from them like a day or two after, and I thought, wait a minute, you are now trying to capitalize and make money on the blood of 1.5 million Armenian genocide victims uh, based on archives you always had, and yet you didn't use it to call it exactly what it was until President Biden recognized it. And now all of a sudden, New York Times wants to make money from this. Uh, What a disgusting thing for New York Times to do. I have personally uh, stopped uh, following them on social media. I won't read them uh, unless someone prompts me to read something egregious that needs to be noted. But uh, yeah, let's get blunt and let's call out these... Uh, media companies for their inaccurate both sidism and false balance reporting. And of course some of them we also know are beneficiaries of caviar diplomacy. So um there it is. I just got blunt. Let's get blunt. The blunt post with Vic. Dr. Irina Raplanyan is a political scientist, climate negotiator, and a published author. Dr. Raplanyan holds bachelor's degree from the University of Malta and a doctorate degree in political science from the university of cambridge dr gaplanian served as deputy minister of environment for the republic of armenia between 2018 and 2020 currently she acts as a senior advisor on climate change to the world bank group as an as an international expert on climate change to the fao she also teaches at the american university of armenia Dr. Raplanyan has worked in a number of international organizations and think tanks around the world to include UNDP, Georgetown University, and Eurasia Foundation. In 2015, she was awarded as one of the top social venture entrepreneurs by the Global Food Fund Leadership Program in Washington, D.C. Dr. Raplanyan has a number of academic and media publications, among which the most recent is a book titled Post-Soviet Armenia, The New National Elite and the New National Narrative. Irina, uh, this is um, sort of a, it's an important thing to sort of um, really establish because so many people don't know or have never heard of Artsakh or, or by its Soviet name, which is uh, For those that have never heard about it or not much, what is Artsakh? Where is Artsakh?
3: Thank you. Um, A very important question, I guess, because indeed I would certainly agree with you that Not much is heard about Artsakh, specifically uh, with its Armenian name. It's better known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and to the world it is known mostly because of the conflict that um, erupted in 1980s, at the end of 1980s, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, it's important to know and how to introduce to the international public uh, and the audience the, the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, what had transpired, I think it's important to do, um, even if small, but a step back into history, so that a context is well articulated and clear uh, to the world as to what had transpired. Um, at the, I will go back not that far, mostly in the Soviet period. So when the Soviet Union was created, there were different administrative borders uh, within the Union republics, uh, such as um, autonomous oblasts, oblasts, and others. Now what had transpired and I think it's a very important moment in history uh, in the early 1920s because it was uh, heavily Armenian populated at the time of the creation of the Soviet Union. uh, The last census that was conducted uh, was uh, 1923. 94% of Artsakh's population, Nagorno-Karabakh's population uh, was Armenian. So it was heavily Armenian populated uh, region. Uh, that was initially, uh, in 1923, assigned to uh, the Soviet Socialist Republic of Armenia. Uh, It was assigned by a decision of a so-called Caucasus Bureau. It was an administrative uh, decision-making body within the South Caucasus at the time. But within days, the decision was unilaterally reversed by Stalin. Uh, most of the historians explain this uh, reversal of the decision that was made by the then um, administrative authority in the South Caucasus. Most of the historians explain this as an, an attempt to appease to Ataturk. At the time, exactly in 1923, the creation of the Turkish Republic after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Stalin uh, and Soviet authorities were entertaining the idea of bringing uh, the newly minted Turkish Republic into the proletariat realm. And actually, uh, Atatürk uh, did entertain this idea at least um, very vocally uh, to the population in, um, to the communist population of the world, if you will. Um, It still remains unclear whether that was ever on the agenda of the Turkish Republic at the time, but certainly it served to the uh, the purpose uh, that was initially set, and that is, um, you know, giving Nakhichevan Republic to Azerbaijan, which is, again, was at the time of the creation of the Soviet Union, 70%, more than 70% populated by Armenians. So Armenians were ethnically cleansed from Nakhichevan, which is was at the time of the Soviet Union uh, an autonomous uh, oblast within Azerbaijan as well. And what is important to know is that unfortunately Nagorno-Karabakh, or Artsakh as Armenians call it, became prey of this big power games very very early on, and Armenians throughout the Soviet era attempted to uh, redress this injustice in the 1940s. So during the Stalin period, it was virtually impossible to bring this issue to the political agenda of the central authorities of the Soviet Union. And uh, Stalin um, kind of put a taboo on this topic. So uh, literally at the end of the Second World War, um, sometime around 1947, Armenians felt emboldened to bring this issue to the agenda. It was shut down immediately. In the 1950s, 1960s, actually twice, the uh, Armenians of Stepanakert, Nagorno-Karabakh brought this political uh, issue to the Central Authority's agenda, stating that we want to re- reunify back with the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. Right. Um, it was struck down again. In the 70s and uh, in 1980s, when Gorbachev came to power and they started the period of glasnost and perestroika, Armenians again felt emboldened that, well, now there's transparency, we can make ourselves heard. And they again brought this um, forward to the political agenda of central authorities, requesting reunification back with Armenia, which again was shut down, but this time around in a very, I would call it criminal way. Uh, because um, what happened is uh, the, f- the first trigger was, unfortunately, the pogroms in Sumgait and Baku that led to uh, morbid and killings of Armenians in those two Azerbaijani cities, uh, women, children, elderly. Um, and that led to massive uh, flow of refugees from Azerbaijan, Armenian refugees from Azerbaijan, um, my grandmother, many of my relatives uh, lived in uh, Baku. In other parts of uh, Azerbaijan, for example, the Dashkestan region, Khanla region, uh, they all had to flee because of the tensions that were rising. And obviously, the same occurred in Armenia. Azerbaijanis were leaving uh, parts of the Armenia where they had settled during the Soviet Union because Soviet authorities, central authorities, for decades had uh, certain policies of moving different ethnic groups. Um, and then what had transpired, unfortunately, uh, Russian authorities together, well, at the time still Soviet authorities together with uh, authorities in Baku ba- organized a so-called Operation Ring, or in Russian, Operation Kalso, which was, um, I would say, um, to be politically correct and historically uh, accurate was essentially an attempt at ethnic cleansing of Armenians uh, from certain parts of uh, Artsakh and they succeeded. Um, Basically it was a punishment of central authorities to Armenians in making themselves heard and wanting to be uh, reunited with Armenia. And then what had transpired is unfortunately uh, military clashes. Uh, So after the Operation Ring, the situation in Artsakh and around Artsakh became more volatile and we started seeing more and more clashes and the people of Artsakh began to organize in uh, small military groups to defend themselves because they already saw what had transpired in Shaomian region with ethnic cleansing of Armenians from there and they started defending their homes and that was the beginning of uh, military confrontation and then later a full-scale scale war which lasted until ni- 19 19- Now, in 1994, it was Azerbaijani authorities who requested uh, Russia to mediate uh, a ceasefire, and that's what happened in Bishkek in 1994. Uh, Four parties uh, came to the negotiating table and signed the the ceasefire agreement. Uh, That was Azerbaijan, Armenia, nagorno Karabakh, and Russia, Mm -hmm. who was mediating the whole process. Um, so, for 30 years, Armenia, uh, uh, Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, basically held the territories around Nagorno-Karabakh proper. They had referendum, they had government, they had territory, they had uh, full, uh, all of the uh, elements that would qualify an entity to be recognized before the international law as a sovereign state. Uh, for 30 years, for three decades, uh, OSCE Minsk Group, which was charged with the mediation mandate of the conflict, called all of the parties to the conflict to uh, mediate and resolve the conflict by peaceful means. Uh, and one of the major uh, factors that was incorporated in every aspect of mediation of the OAC Minsk Group was commitment to non-use of force. Mm -hmm. to which Armenia had fully committed, uh, to which uh, Nagorno-Karabakh had fully committed, and uh, to which Azerbaijan did not commit, as we saw what had transpired in uh, 2020 in fall.
1: Thank you for that. That was uh, incredibly insightful, detailed, and uh, thorough. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jorami. And you are listening to my interview with Dr. Irina Raplanyan, who is an expert on South Caucasus politics, and we are discussing what's happening around the world in Artsakh and Armenia and Azerbaijan's and Turkey's uh, war raged on these two states. So of course, since 94, there have been skirmishes here and there, and there was a war in 2016 that lasted a few days. What led to what I call an, a, a genocidal assault and another ethnic cleansing that Azerbaijan and Turkey unleashed on people of Artsakh last in 2020, September 27th? What led to it? What were the—what was the basis and how, how did it happen?
3: I think uh, in answering this question we have to we absolutely have to look into the political context of the region, the political context of the conflict and the domestic situation in Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijani authorities were largely <clears throat> humiliated in the 1990s because they were the ones who started the full-scale war against uh, Artsakh and against all odds. Armenians mm-hmm. won in mm-hmm. that war. Uh, they were, um, the ratio of manpower and weapons was three to one, Azerbaijan versus Armenians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet Armenia, as, uh, as mentioned, despite all odds, won the war. So um, Azerbaijan was indeed um, humiliated in that war. And the Aliyev clan, uh, which at the time the, the president of Azerbaijan was Heydar Aliyev, and Heydar Aliyev uh, died in 2003, uh, essentially giving power off the entire hydrocarbon uh, country in the South Caucasus to his son. And what we see today happening is Aliyev's family controls virtually every essential uh, business and sector in that country. Uh, and uh, they have full grip and control of power. It is by default um, a dictatorship uh, and certainly uh, uh, could be called a hereditary dictatorship because uh, Aliyev appointed his wife as deputy, as vice president, and uh, many observers and analysts, uh, uh, well, they forecast that it is likely that one of the Aliyev family or uh, Mehriban Pashayeva's family would uh, then inherit the next, uh, uh, the next round of power in that country. So to understand the context is. Um, Haydar Aliyev uh, was humiliated, Azerbaijan was humiliated. And uh, the Aliyevs did everything to save face. So um, it became part of the political establishment of the Azerbaijani Republic, uh, constantly vilifying and dehumanizing um, and creating this enemy that is uh, essentially hateful by default. Azerbaijani Republic essentially over the past 30 years was built and the identity of modern Azerbaijanis was built on hating Armenians. Um, That became part of uh, what essentially is uh, patriotism for any Azerbaijani and that is why it is so so dangerous moving forward what we had seen in the war of 2020 what had transpired uh, and the the morbid crimes that were committed against uh, Armenian civilians and military personnel showcases that Aliyev essentially succeeded in spreading hate and creating that uh, dehumanizing image of Armenians. Mm -hmm. Um, And that policy of saving face domestically also unfortunately uh, allowed him to hold on to power. If you look, uh, the most uh, wealthy country, the uh, the wealthiest country in the South Caucasus is Azerbaijan. Just look at the hydrocarbon resources of that country. But data shows that the poorest nation per capita in this region is actually Azerbaijanis. Uh, whereas the recent Pandora and uh, papers reveal exorbitant wealth uh, that uh, Aliyev and Pashaev's family have been exporting from that country. So it is, in a classical understanding, a dictatorship. And in order to hold on to power, you know, Aliyev uh, clan had to constantly uh, present an external enemy, diluting the presence of the internal enemy, which is the dictatorship. And unfortunately, that became his modus operandi, and that became his saving grace in holding on to power, whereas he invested billions of dollars into arms, the most sophisticated arms. and. Um, What triggered in 2020 the war were a number of factors in addition to that context, which I think is so important for all of us to conceive, how dictatorships work, how they hold on to power at the expense of the well-being of their own people. So what had transpired in 2020, obviously the coronavirus, uh, the U.S. presidential election, which. Uh, consumed the entire media space of the West because of um, obviously heavily contested election. Um, Then uh, another factor that not many talk about is the oil prices. Mm -hmm. Because Azerbaijani economy so heavily depends on the hydrocarbon wealth of that country and directly Aliyev's wealth is dependent on that, Uh, we've seen a number of times where the, the a car, correlation be, between uh, the drop in oil prices and the increase in social unrest in Azerbaijan. Right. So Aliyev uh, together with Erdogan very uh, meticulously calculated the right time where the world will be clearly distracted fighting a global enemy that is pandemic of coronavirus, right. uh, where the world will be distracted looking at uh, the United States and the elections there, because although a domestic issue, American elections uh, reverberate across the world, because in the period of Trump's administration, we saw America withdrew uh, withdraw from the world. Right. Uh, whether it was Paris Agreement or, or uh, Middle East, America was absent. And that unfortunately, in and of itself, created a ripe environment for dictators to be emboldened. We saw what, in the period of Uh, these four years had transpired in Libya, in Syria, in the Eastern Mediterranean, where Erdogan, being a NATO uh, ally member, essentially was free to do whatever he pleased. So I think it is important to understand internal context of what had transpired in Azerbaijan for years Mm -hmm. in terms of dehumanization uh, of uh, Armenians and creating Azerbaijani. Patriotic identity on hating Armenians. And then um, Aliyev's holding on to power because of that. His saving grace was uh, exactly that dehumanization and creation of the external enemy. And of course, the external factor the coronavirus, US elections, and dropping oil prices. And this alliance between Erdogan and Aliyev was certainly not new. I mean, for years, these two dictators articulated the narrative. Uh, two states, one nation. And this was the right time for also Erdogan to project his neo-imperial ambition, of which he actually now talks quite openly.
1: Pan-Turkism. Yes. Yeah. To which Armenia is an obstacle.
3: Absolutely. A physical, uh, a cultural, um, a political obstacle that essentially has to be eliminated.
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Irina Raplanyan, who is an expert on South Caucasus politics. And we are discussing what's happening around the world in Artsakh and Armenia, and Azerbaijan's and Turkey's uh, war raged on these two states. Well, you covered the region very well. You covered the context and what led to and the reasons for this attack. Uh, Now let's talk about sort of like the deafening silence of the greater international community. Of course, as you mentioned, we had been uh, grappling with COVID. But nonetheless, uh, there was really a deafening silence coming from many international bodies and agencies that are meant to address things like this. Yes. And uh, sort of so-called allied countries as well. Sort of talk about that.
3: Sure. Well, as I mentioned, unfortunately, the world was distracted because of pandemic, fighting pandemic. Um, The U.S. was in election. But we also need to understand that there are uh, a range of other factors. First of all, uh, the objective factor is Uh, The world is not very familiar uh, with uh, post-Soviet conflicts in general and with um, nagorno karabakh conflict in particular. Uh, Not familiar because it is tucked away, but also because um, it is kind of still looked at as um, Roughly saying, the backyard of Russia, this part of the world, uh, despite you know um, Georgia engaging with um, uh, accession negotiations with the EU, uh, making statements about uh, their intent to uh, be considered for NATO membership, et cetera, et cetera, the world, generally speaking, is still. Uh, feels that this geopolitical region is kind of out of the the reach. And hence the objective reality that not much is known uh, about the conflict. Now what is important to understand in this context of general awareness about the conflict and the region is that uh, very clearly understanding that uh, Aliyev doesn't fit into (laughs) although claiming a democratic understanding of a state. You know, his country and his regime, uh, uh, to be more specific, engaged in active propaganda, uh, whether of whitewashing Aliyev's domestic and international crimes, uh, or um, also whitewashing the, what, had, what had been going on in the conflict for 30 years. So it's, it's a standard tactic of any dictatorship where you warp the truth or you simply falsify information. And Azerbaijan for years has been engaged in rewriting history um, from claiming ancestral lands of non-existing Azerbaijan to claiming um, cultural and uh, historic figures that were, for example, Iranian claiming that those are um, Azerbaijan as a state did not exist until uh, 1918. Uh, And the name of the state is actually borrowed from uh, Iran, from Persia. Um, The the state of Azerbaijan existed within the current borders and still exists within the current borders of Iran, namely the northwestern part of Iran is called, northwestern part of Iran is called Azerbaijan. So um, I think what is important to understand here is also this context that uh, Aliyev's regime engaged in this active propaganda of what they wanted to project. to the world in an attempt to whitewash domestic and international crimes. Now, uh, I'm referring to domestic crimes because a lot of organizations, international organizations, for years have been documenting uh, the the regime in Azerbaijan, <clears throat> imprisoning political uh, opposition, imprisoning journalists, uh, and that was all, always coupled with torture or uh, assassination. Aliyev had systematically engaged in hunting down uh, <clears throat> and killing his critiques outside of Azerbaijan. Um, the famous case of Alexander Labshin. The, Israeli-Russian blogger who traveled to Nagorno-Karabakh and was blacklisted uh, by Aliyev uh, uh, by Aliyev's regime, uh, and then Putin, uh, was literally captured in Mos- in, Mos- uh, in Minsk by Belarusian authorities. And against uh, the urgent uh, the urgent requests of Israel and uh, Russian governments, because he's both national of Russian Federation and Israel. Uh, Alexander Lapshin was extradited to Azerbaijan, tried in a ridiculous mock trial, something that we are systematically seeing now uh, perpetrated against uh, Armenian POWs and detainees, uh, tried and then uh, attempted, uh, uh, the Azerbaijani authorities attempted to murder him. And just in time, Israeli authorities succeeded in uh, returning him back home. Very shortly after, Mr. Lopshin applied to the European Court of Human Rights and the court lasted for a few years. And just this year in May, the ECHR, European Court of Human Rights, uh, issued a verdict uh, stating that Azerbaijan is at fault of a torture and attempted murder of uh, Alexander Labshin. So I think when we talk about the qualities of this regime, we have to be very clear that on the one hand, it is specifically and ethnically motivated against Armenians, but the institutional uh, the institutional aspects and instrumentary is designed to torture and murder anybody who counters Aliyev and his inner circle, whether you're Israeli, whether you are Azeri, or whether you are Armenian. So this is an important context to understand. And Aliyev is well-educated. He started studied in Moscow. He's very well-versed in, uh, in Russian and English. He understands who he really is. This is clear. That's why he engages and spends millions of dollars every year in whitewashing who he is, who his family is, what regime he's operating. And I think what is very important also to stress is the recent Pandora papers also revealed that he's well aware that his time in Azerbaijan is not eternal. That is why the massive wealth that he and his family personally accumulate in Azerbaijan, he actually siphons out to... United Kingdom. I mean, recent Pandora papers revealed that just in London alone him and his family own $700 million worth of real estate. That's in and of itself is very telling. So that's the agency of a dictatorship that tries to uh, conceal what is happening in the region and what is happening in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict per se. Now the external aspects are clear as in addition to what I uh, I, I have already mentioned. A lot of European and Western institutions are what I define a hostage to the situation in this part of the world. Uh, following World War II, uh, Turkey was drawn into the um, into the NATO alliance uh, and into different other uh, uh, initiatives that the Western world was starting to put together to counter the existing threat of the Soviet Union. Um, so with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and now with 30 years of this unclear balance of powers globally, um, European uh, uh, institutions and West at large is at odds in trying to decipher what is the role of Turkey in this part of the world, because it was essentially a gatekeeper to the expansion of communism and, pro- and uh, proletariat revolution, right, uh, and now it is unclear. So. You see gradually, especially in the past few years, uh, Western institutions are starting to outsource certain security functions to Turkey. We've seen what had transpired in Syria, uh, with um, Turkey being now the gatekeeper of refugees coming from the Middle East. Uh, We see now what had transpired in Kabul airport and that Western institutions are now funding Turkey to take care of of, uh, this, uh, partly of the situation in Kabul, Afghanistan. So this is very, very concerning that now, uh, you know, with the withdrawal of uh, forces uh, in Afghanistan, you see that the West is kind of outsourcing this very important function of security to Turkey and becoming more entrapped and hostage to sustaining stability and security in the region and globally. And certainly, Turkey is taking advantage of that. Now, what is important to note is not only Turkey behaves in a very bold, to put it mildly, fashion, purchasing, for example, weapons from Russia, in full contradiction to the requests of other NATO allies not to do so, uh, right? Uh, The behavior of Turkey in Libya, the behavior of Turkey in Syria, the recent clashes in the Eastern Mediterranean, these are showcasing that Erdogan has a very clear agenda moving forward. We already talked about that. Now, European institutions are at odds. They need to... uh, rewire the entire approach to the world because as i said those institutions particularly military alliances were creating were created during the uh, the cold war right. now I, I want to quote specifically uh french president uh, emmanuel macron who said in reference to NATO, and I quote, NATO is brain dead. I think it's a very pointed definition or description of what NATO is today, considering the behavior of NATO member ally. Um, Turkey, uh, right, despite all the calls uh, of international community, of the Western, allied forces to uh, restrain. So this is an important aspect. And of course uh, the European Union itself, America's uh, withdrawal for four years, and I literally call it political uh, global withdrawal because of Trump's administration putting forward America first uh, foreign policy notion that, uh, all right, we're isolating ourselves from the rest of the world, again, giving more room for dictators like Erdogan to do whatever he pleases in the region. Um, and lastly, I think also uh, the situation with the European Union. It was, it's was it been decades since Turkey has requested a consideration for membership of the European Union. And since uh, the, the stage of the talks and negotiations for the accession, uh, Turkey has been receiving massive amounts of money from the European Union every year. And over the past five years, the attempted coup in uh, Turkey, we have seen every year uh, moving away further and further from the value system of democracy. We have seen thousands of people being arrested, imprisoned, persecuted for their beliefs, Mm -hmm, for any alternative political narrative to that of Erdogan. Mm -hmm. So as Turkey is moving further away from democratic values espoused by the European Union, there has to be reconsideration on the part of the European Union, of where Turkey stands and how to tame it. Because if the European powers don't do it now, tomorrow it might be too late.
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Irina Kaplanyan, who is an expert on South Caucasus' politics, and we are discussing what's happening around the world in Artsakh and Armenia and Azerbaijan's and Turkey's uh, war raged on these two states. Irina, you've covered quite a lot um which brings us to my last question we are here now this this incredibly grave doesn't even cut it massacre injustice uh war crimes crimes against humanity were committed with the leadership of aliyev and erdogan uh, and it seems like they're kind of getting away with it i know that you've written about this the importance of of exposing this and holding them accountable. Yes. Please explain why it's so important, what we can do.
3: Well, why it is important is simply uh, because of an important element of justice is unless you hold perpetrators accountable to the crimes that they have committed, they will continue to do so. That is one of the most important aspects of why we as human species want to seek justice to the wrongdoing. Now that is out of question that uh, those two criminal regimes have to be held accountable in the court of law, domestically and internationally to what they have done. What is absolutely crucial here is to put things in perspective because as I said earlier, Azerbaijan is engaged in not only warfare on the battlefield, but in a cyber war, in a war over truth, in information war. For years, Azerbaijan has whitewashed its dictatorial regime and projected a false narrative about what the country is, what had transpired in the nagorno karabakh war, what the country has done so much historical and cultural expropriation, It's it doesn't have the likes of it uh, globally. So what is important here is to name things the way they really are and the way they occur. First of all, on September 27th, a UN member state unleashed a full-scale war against two democratic republics. That is plain and simple fact, to which, in fact, Aliyev a number of his interviews essentially admitted, although the entire Azerbaijani propaganda machine has been denying the fact that they started this war. Um, because of the use of force, which is one of the first things that uh, UN Security Council condones, any use of force, is, uh, con- um, is condoned by, um, by the United Nations as, um, as an institution and by the respective agencies. So I think what we have to constantly reiterate is that a UN member state unleashed a full scale war for 44 days, uh, targeting and shelling indiscriminately and deliberately uh, civilian population and civilian instra- uh, infrastructure for the sole purpose of ethnic cleansing. Because as history shows, with ethnic cleansing of Nahichevan, they took full control and not only erased the population but every single cultural heritage Armenians have had there from. Uh, dozens of churches to the biggest Armenian cemetery of medieval cemetery was simply raised to the ground. So knowing that this regime is capable of committing these gruesome cultural and human crimes against humanity, we have to be wary and we have to constantly tell the truth and articulate the real facts of what had transpired for 44 days last fall in this part of the world. Um, crimes against humanity because targeting civilians for 44 days indiscriminately and deliberately amounts to nothing short of not just war crimes but crimes against humanity. And Armenians and global community have to uh, seek justice, and have to seek accountability of these two regimes that have unleashed this uh, massive amount of war crimes on Armenians. And this wasn't limited to just uh, indiscriminate and deliberate shelling of uh, civilian infrastructure, cultural heritage, uh, sites uh, and civilians. This was coupled with the use of incendiary weapons containing phosphor- white phosphorus, uh, which is, by respect of international uh, legislation, is forbidden on the use of uh, for, uh, on the use of civilians. Um, the use of um, u- using weapons against uh, maternity hospital. Maternity hospital was targeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, cathedral was targeted. So these are. Uh, a series of war crimes and essentially amounting to uh, what many international lawyers have uh, qualified as crime against humanity.
1: That's right. (sighs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) That was amazing. That was my interview with Dr. Irina Raplanyan, who is an expert uh, in climate change as well as South Caucasus and what is happening in Artsakh and Armenia right now. Uh, Dr. Ghaplanyan, thank you very much for your time and for being on the show, and uh, I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit TheBluntPost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicGerami. At V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.